Canucks Central Thursday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shaw coming to you from the Kintech studio, an abbreviated version of Canucks Central today, but still all of the goodness you are accustomed to. Harmon Dial is going to join us here in a few moments as we get in on the Vancouver Canucks, who will uh, be up against the Calgary Flames tomorrow at Rogers Arena, sat and continuing life under Rick Tockett. Yeah, and uh, you know we keep talking about them hurting their draft positioning, but improving yes. their play, and you know that's been the ongoing discourse about this team. And it will uh, stay that way, I would assume, <laughs> until May eighth, yeah. when the Canucks eventually win the lottery and Ooh, draft like second it. overall. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, first, first. <laughs> we'll take second, but first. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. He joins us uh, regularly here on Canuck Central. It is Harmon Dial of The Athletic. Thanks for this, Harm. How are you? Doing well, guys. How are you? Uh, we're doing great. So there's there's a lot of stuff here that, you know, because, okay, the, the Canucks are playing better. They're getting more results. But what's actually real here? And I know there's... Um, you know, some stuff that you've been writing about over at The Athletic and, and a lot of focus on J.T. Miller in one of your latest. I, I've been um, maybe more of, uh, well, the listeners, to, to put it bluntly, have called me a Miller apologist through the course of the year. <laughs> and, and maybe now I feel like I'm being proven right. Uh, what's changed for J.T. Miller under Rick Tockett? Yeah, his, uh, his game has just taken taken a complete 180 direction compared to what we saw at the beginning of uh of the year because it's not just the offensive production the 34 points in 27 games and him starting to produce at five and five again but when you look at the underlying numbers his two-way game has seen the largest improvement of all canucks forward since the coaching change and that checks out in terms of when you watch the games you'll notice for starters I think the biggest difference has been that his puck management is a lot crisper. So you're noticing, for example, that earlier in the year at the offensive blue line, when he tried to enter the zone, a lot of times he'd be trying to make the home run east-west pass. Uh, he simplified that, uh, that side of it, playing a more north-south north style. Uh, in the defensive end as well, you'll occasionally see a giveaway, but the difference is, Early in the season, there were so many occasions where he'd just hang on to a puck for way too long, and you could see the mistake uh, coming uh, from a mile away sort of thing, and that just hasn't happened recently. So you couple that with, uh, I've seen a, a huge difference in his battle and work rate down low defensively. Uh, he's able to stop, help stop the cycle um, just through a sh sheer effort, which is important because I think naturally when you watch Miller, Miller in the defensive zone at center ice, uh, he's not the quickest player in terms of processing and sort of scanning uh, threats around him. So the, the way that he's able to compensate for that right now is that he's leaning on his physical tools and just being able to win battles and close, close on guys quickly, his, uh, his physical tools that way. Uh, where in the beginning of the season, we consistently saw the poor effort on back checks. Um, the fact that he seemed to sometimes float in his own end and the net front coverage wasn't as solid. So um, he's, I think those are some of the two-way details where he's improved that 5-5 five five that um, have allowed him to take a huge step forward. And I think it's interesting when you look at the bigger picture in terms of Miller's resume at center and trying to determine, okay, We've seen a lot of volatility. What can we sort of expect moving forward? 
The interesting thing is we've seen the seesaw ever since he first started playing center um, during the uh, 2021 56 game shortened season where uh, in that year, for example, you look at his uh, his defensive numbers. I think he was allowing goals against at almost um, uh, four an hour mm-hmm. uh, at five on five. So he was struggling there defensively that season. Obviously, the last season, then he had an outstanding season at center. Then you have this season, which has been a tale of essentially two halves, where initially he has a nightmare start. Now he's dominant. I think what you're starting to learn about Miller is that he is he. You do see a lot of volatility. So in terms of trying to project, okay, what what type of value could you expect next season? Um, you kind of have to, like, you look at the extreme where he, he was, where he seemed like a defensive liability at the start of this season, and now where he's been truly dominant, I'd expect something sort of in between, um, just based off uh, the larger sample trend of you see a lot of volatility, and it, it and, and you do see that level of um, uh, of uh, of up and down nature in his play. Well, and that consistency obviously has to come into play next season. And, and I'm really curious about who his line mates will be next year. Because right now, he's really the play driver on his line. Bester, he's really draw, dragged along with him. PDG's done a good job. But we all know kind of PDG's kind of the third guy on that line doing a good job on the forecheck. But it's really him driving play. And if I'm looking at this roster, if Bavillier's here next year, and let's say he sticks with Pedersen and Kuzmenko, I like the idea of Mikheyev with JT Miller for that straight ahead, get on the four check. He's good along the walls, bring speed and defensive conscience to it. I love to see another, you know, high end player with JT, but I, I wonder what the line could look like for him next year in Vancouver. Yeah. I love the idea of Mikheyev uh, next him for next year, because that's another thing that I was sort of thinking about was watching how he's had the success lately. It's been a very sort of, taxing physically intensive mm-hmm. style that he's had to play and like when you look at how um how hard he's back checking how uh intensely he's battling in the corners and 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 sort of defending the front of the net so you sort of expect him to put all that defensive effort in and you're still expecting him to completely drive the the bus offensively that's a lot to ask for right and that's where you mentioned with Mikheyev um his speed his ability to win battles the defensive reliability uh, aspect that he brings the, brings to the table, I think that could be really valuable on Miller's wing, especially because with Mikheyev this year, sure, we saw some of the offensive elements, but clearly with him playing through the ACL injury, I don't think we we got close to seeing um, the level of two-way impact that he was able to del- deliver in Toronto, which I think he'll be able to deliver next season once once he's healthy. And I think that's huge where that extra sort of step um, in – elevating that line's pace could be huge. You think back to when uh, the Miller line was, for example, struggling at the start of uh, this season. I think a big part of the issue that they ran into was you had Miller, you had Pearson, you had Besser um, all on one line. The three of them aren't good skaters. And, And at times it felt like they didn't have the speed to keep up against top competition. So if you're going to lean on Miller to play heavy sort of top six minutes, potentially go up against the opposition's best players. I really like the idea of having McCabe there to bring speed, bring defensive reliability, and, and sort of help JT to where he doesn't have to take on all the defensive burden in addition to having to drive the offense as well. If the Canucks got this kind of goaltending all season long, how much better would they be? I think they'd be right around sort of just on the outside looking in, I think in terms of the playoff race. 
it's interesting because early in the season with this club's defensive form, I, I think it's tough to look at goaltending and, and say, oh, if they had just gotten, if Demko had just been normal through the start of the season, they'd be a playoff team right now. Like, it, I don't think it's to well, that you, extreme. You couldn't expect Demko to be normal in those circumstances, right? Exactly. Like, the level of backdoor tap-ins they were allowing on the penalty kill, how they were exposed off the rush, uh, there were the number of turnovers. It was just a defensive nightmare through the first couple months of the season. And look, I don't think there's any statistical model that can honestly sort of account for that, for that environment that he was uh, playing in, even the advanced models, right? I've seen a lot of people bring up the uh, sort of, for example, the goals above expected models. Those can't account for pre-shot movement, which is to say they can't account for a lot of the, da- the dangerous um, passes across the slot that Demko had to face. So I still don't think that they would have been, a, would, would have been in a playoff situation. Obviously, I think they would have been much closer, um, to, uh, much closer to at least you know, being in a spot where, where you're like, okay, they're just on the outside looking in. But this is where you're hoping that with Talkit helping stabilize the structure of this team going into next season, you're hoping that, okay, if they can just at least be competent defensively, that hopefully that can open the door for Demko um, to continue on the form that he's shown since returning from his injury. And that then that would be the, that would be the combination um, that would allow them to make the playoffs next season. So absolutely. I think goaltending bouncing back can make a huge impact next season. But you're also going to need to see the level of defensive play we've seen under Talkit mm-hmm. uh, hold up for most of next year as well. Well, and then not to mention the additions we talked about this team needing to make and also the subtractions. And a couple of players you also outlined in your article on The Athletic, or one of your articles in The Athletic, a lot of good ones. We, we'll get to the Bedard one because I think that one was fascinating as well, Harm. But Besser and Connor Garland, it's clear both guys have improved, but Besser's defensive play remains an issue. And the the game the other night, it was kind of a per- perfect microcosm of it. You know, you saw all the defensive issues, you saw the mistakes, but then you saw him have three points. What do we make of the way Besser is playing right now? Yeah, I mean, the positive is that he's looking a lot more engaged and um, a lot more dynamic, where it felt like from an offensive perspective, even when he was producing points earlier in, earlier in the year, it felt like a lot of those were sort of secondary assists and a lot, and he wasn't sort of heavily involved in the outcome of the goal. Like he, you, he might end up with an assist on a play, but you, you wouldn't look at that goal and, and say, Oh man, Besser's pass there was really the key. It was really the primary driver for that, uh, for that outcome. Whereas now I think you're seeing him um, play a lot more noticeable offensively. I think the skatings look better. So that's a positive, but like you, like you mentioned, and like you mentioned, the defensive side of things has still been, uh, a really big struggle for him where when you look at um, when he's been been on the ice at five on five and um, the Canucks is expected goal share, he's uh, dead last among Canucks forwards. And you look at his goals against uh, goals against totals at five on five. I also believe that they're the highest uh, among Canucks forwards since Taka took over. So that's still an area that is um, eroding some of the offensive value, which has been puzzling between yeah. because one of the, uh, interesting developments we saw from him between 2019 and 2021 was that rounding out of his all-around game, becoming more responsible, making plays along the boards, winning more battles, being a more effective presence on the forecheck. And it's like he's lost a lot of those details uh, this season. I'm not sure why. Uh, it'll be up to the coaching staff to 
try and diagnose um, what's gone on there and see if they can help him get back on track there. Because when you look at the details and engagement, like Connor Garland has been the better player. He's been better defensively. He's been better in, in terms of his engagement. He's been driving play on the third line, good along the walls. But there's a question about, is he the ideal fit with a guy like JT Miller? Because if we look at it just from in terms of uh, meritocracy, I think Garland's been the more effective player than Besser. But is the coach A, or is the organization A, either inflating or trying to keep Besser's you know production high playing him up there? Or is it simply a, a case of, Garland's better suited to kind of be the main guy in our third line. Now, I don't like paying $5 million for that, but maybe that's his best position. How do you view Garland fitting in and whether he should be in Besser's spot instead? I, I think it's a combination of both because Garland has had a tough time building chemistry within the top six when he, for example, has had a little bit of time here and there with Elias Patterson maybe earlier in the season or, or at points last season even. Um, and we saw we saw him for a long stretch with Miller this season, but they didn't quite. They, they were fine, but I don't I don't think they were deli- delivering the type of results that you really wanted to see out of uh, Garland. And so that's where I think both factors are true. Where Besser's a better fit in the top six as uh, as a complementary player because he's he's a more predictable player for a guy like Miller or Patterson to play with because you know what his role is going to be. You know what, what, how he's going to support the puck. Um, whereas with Garland, he's the sort of player that likes to have the puck on his stick. And he's very unpredictable in terms of his uh, style of play where because of all the spins and the turns, it can be tough to read off of him. And that's, that's also exactly why he's better suited than Besser to driving a third line because um, he can be that puck possession type uh, type player who helps carry it up the ice, who sets up um, some of uh, some of the bottom six line mates. Whereas when you saw Besser, for example, playing with Sheldon Drives for a long time, um, on paper you might think, okay, a player player of Brock Besser's production, he should be able to help um, help lift that third line. It just didn't really work because he's not uh, he's not suited to being the best player on uh, on a line and, and really making a lot of plays. So. Um, I, I actually like it the way it is right now in terms of Besser being in the top six and, and leaning on Garland to sort of help drive her bottom six because when you have, for example, the Elias Pettersson line delivering such high-end results, for next season what you really need is a level of competency throughout the rest of your uh, rest of your three lines. You just need to make sure that you're not getting crushed, for example, in the bottom six is on the ice. And when, when you look at what Garland's been able to do in the underlying numbers, um, I think he's driven a plus four goal differential at five on five since the coaching change to get that level of um, positive value from a bottom six line um, could be really valuable, even though, as you mentioned, you, you, don't, you obviously don't ideally want to be paying five million for that. It was interesting to see Jim Rutherford name drop Ethan Bear in the uh, letter to season ticket holders yesterday because... It sort of hints that you know they believe Ethan Bear can be a larger part of the solution moving forward, and I'd say we we've seen some good and bad of Ethan Bear. Do you think there's more to get out of this player, as the Canucks seem to think so? I don't think there's a lot to be honest. Ultimately, I view him as a player who's a bottom pair defenseman on uh, on a good team, but for the Canucks, the thing to keep in mind is that they have to be honest about how much money they'll 
they, they think they'll have to play with in the offseason. They'll have to sort of think ahead and project out which players, which defensemen might be available on the trade mar- or trade or, or for agent market. And if they look at, say, the right side of the blue line, they say, okay, Hronik, we've got one, for instance, top four defenseman on the right side that we're really comfortable with. If they're unsure, if they lack confidence in being able to find the sort of second RD that can play in your, play in your top four in a complementary role, then they might just have to lean on Ethan Bear as a stopgap, even if it's on, let's say, a, a one-year contract. Because w- when it comes to complementary guys, I mean, I don't hate the idea of Bear sort of being um, the, the fourth defenseman in your, in your top four, just because it's hard to find top four right shot um, defenseman who can, who can provide that value, especially in a situation when you might not have a lot of uh, cap space or, or trade chips to work with. So I kind of just view him as a sort of player who on a good team, he's probably bottom pair guy, but for the Canucks, he could probably be for next season, um, a stop gap to, to caddy with somebody like a, a Quinn Hughes, even though in an ideal world, you'd probably want an upgrade on bear. Well, and I, I think the reality is it's so hard finding good right-hand defensemen and finding guys that are better. And the way Quinn Hughes has played, it's clear he's able to elevate his D partner. And can you get by with a guy like Ethan Bear? And do they sign a veteran like a, you know, Shen again? And maybe you fight out for who can play with Quinn, who plays on the third pair. I think that makes sense to until you find that long-term answer. Because it's a lot easier this year to find that lefty penalty-killing defenseman to, to pair with Heronic and then try to piece it together with Quinn Hughes and whoever you put alongside him on the right side. I think that's an easier path to success this offseason. Absolutely. We've also seen uh, good teams in the past try and um, sort of almost by necessity use that approach where Tampa Bay for such a long time would have Victor Hedman and uh, on the right side of their defense, they had Eric Chernak, who's a two-way beast, but they wanted to use him in a sort of shutdown role. And so they didn't really have another top four right D. So they'd essentially say, okay, Victor Hedman, we think you're one of the best defensemen in, in the world. We're going to just sort of rotate through uh, players who are probably bottom pair defensemen, but we trust that you can sort of carry this pairing. And that's why for a long time you'd, you would see players like uh, Jan Ruda or, uh, or Zach Bogosian spend minutes on uh, the top pair with Victor Hedman. And, the, the Lightning were able to find success with that formula because uh, they had an embarrassment of riches on the left side with Hedman, uh, 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 Sergachev, and, uh, and, and McDonough in years past. So um, we have seen teams in the past sort of try and take that approach. And, and again, I mean, in an ideal world, like we all want Quinn Hughes to have a stud of a partner. It's just not easy to affordably find that uh, type of player. And so um, this might be uh, the, the Canucks' next best um uh, option. Um, Canucks have made a couple of uh, free agent signings uh, out of the college undrafted. Max Sasson, Akito Hirose, and uh, Andy Carroll signed with the uh, AHL roster as well. Um, what do you think the Canucks have here in these players? Yeah, Hirose is really interesting to me because I watched a little bit of tape last night, and he's not just a good skater in terms of how he looked at the NCAA level. I watched the tape and I went, He's just a good skater, period. Like Even when it comes to NHL-level uh, competition, just how agile he looked, uh, how, um, how explosive he is in sort of small areas. I think the acceleration aspect is uh, really exciting with, uh, with his skill set. And when you pair that with 
the fact that um, he's a smart player in terms of his decision-making, I think there's a pretty uh, fascinating, a pretty intriguing foundation to build off of. The, the question, of course, with him is he's slightly undersized and, def- and, and whether he can defend it at an NHL level or not is going to be um, a, a major sort of question mark. It, it's going to be the development in that side of the game is going to determine whether he's able to actually make an NHL impact or not. But I, I don't, I, I like the bet on him because when you have a player that thinks the game as well as he does and skates that well, um, a player like that does have the potential to learn how to use his mobility and stick check and stick checking to uh, make a defensive impact that way. And at least at the NCAA level, that's where he was able to take a significant step uh, step this year. And so he's also a mature prospect. I think he's going to turn 24 pretty soon. So I'm going to be interested to see um, you know what uh, what type of impact he can he can make with uh, with Sasan. Also, a similar trend where he's a great skater, and and the difference with him is that uh, as a centerman, he also has pretty decent size. Uh, which usually, if you have a player at the NCAA level who has NHL level skating, and and you look at him as a free agent, you're you're probably also going okay, but he's kind of undersized. That's definitely not the case with Sasan. Now, I don't expect him to have a lot of offensive upside. His um, st- statistical profile compares pretty similarly to, for example, Mark Michaelis, um, who, if you'll recall, the Canucks signed, and he wasn't able to really make uh, much of an NHL impact. But between the skating and um, and the size, I do wonder if uh, Sasan has uh, the potential to at least one day provide uh, depth minutes uh, at uh, at the bottom end of uh, of an NHL lineup. Obviously, probably a long shot, like uh, most NCAA college guys are, but... Um, uh, as a centerman, I mean, free asset, I uh, I like to pick up there. Hey, listen, it's the type of stuff we want the team to do, they have done, and they have to keep doing. But the big question comes down to the NHL draft. What type of first-round pick do you have, and do they actually have a shot? Will they have a shot when it's all said and done at perhaps getting the draft pick to select Connor Bedard? And you had a great article on The Athletic about Connor Bedard and what makes him a generational-type talent because he doesn't come with a size and speed combo of a Connor McDavid, but what are the things or the one specific trait that can really make him the type of player that you talk about in that same breath? Yeah, the, the interesting thing with Bedard is that everybody's talked about a shot, right? Which is like the closest comparison we've seen to it is probably Austin Matthews. But what makes Bedard special is that he has so many other dynamic offensive tools. Uh, For example, he has elite hands. He has amazing hockey sense in how he can sort of look at, at, uh, at, at the defense that's in front of him. And then he'll be able to sort of pick apart how he can manipulate defenders uh, in terms of like using the threat of a shot to open up his playmaking. He's really, really creative in how he sees the game. Uh, it's as if, as a defenseman, you have almost no idea anticipating what Bedard is going to do next with the puck because he's the complete package offensively in terms of all of these different skill sets across, uh, uh, across the board. It's like the closest, exa- uh, the, cl- the best way to describe it after sort of watching the tape is that he has, the poten- he has the potential. I'm not saying it's a guarantee he gets there, but he has the potential to be this unique archetype of a franchise superstar where it's like 
he, he, he has a Matthews where he could have a Matthews like shot and then have elements of the offensive creativity, the playmaking, uh, the dynamism of a Patrick Kane. So that's, that's what makes him really, really special. Uh, one thing that's going to be interesting for, for me to sort of see with, uh, with him in terms of how he, how he takes the next step and how his game impacts, the biggest question mark I have is when I was watching the tape, he, doesn't, he didn't really defend like, uh, like a traditional center. Like what I mean by that is a lot of times he would sort of float a little bit on, uh, on the back check. Instead of defending down low like a center does, he'd often be sort of hanging by high in the, in the defensive zone like a winger would, trying to uh, cover the point. And it's like he's waiting for the opposition to turn the puck over so that he can then immediately uh, be the first forward leading the rush on the counterattack. That's not, he, that, like that side of it isn't going to translate um, unless he plays at wing instead of center. So I think there's going to be an, an adjustment and a learning curve for him uh, defensively if he wants to stick at um, uh, center. And I, I think um, he'll have to sort of evolve his, um, his, the way he creates offense off the rush a little bit, but the offensive gifts he has across the board are, are really, really special. And, and it's why I don't think he's going to be a McDavid level uh, caliber player. That's, I just think that's, uh, that's an unrealistic bar, but slightly, slightly below that. Could he be, could he challenge to be, for example, the second best player in the league one day? Absolutely. Uh, Canucks currently with a 6% chance of landing Connor Bedard. Not that anybody's counting or anything. Uh, just eight games left. Harm, you're the best. I really appreciate the time. Thanks, guys. Uh, there is uh, Harmon Dial of The Athletic. 6% chance. 6% chance as of uh, as of right now, yeah. Yes, that, that's 6 1% chances. Very good. <laughs> uh, you have the Philadelphia Flyers in action right now. That could, uh, well, they can't catch the Canucks tonight anyways. But, but no, but they can close the gap. They can close the gap. Go Flyers! It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. More coming up on Canucks Central. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintec.net. Traveling in March, Rogers has you covered. Get one Rome-like home day on Rogers when you travel between now and March 31st. To learn more, go to Rogers.com. Might be a day tomorrow to go check out the Mariners in Seattle. Hmm. Or this weekend, whatever floats your boat. I was thinking today, um, if the if the Canucks were a baseball team, who would be their comp? And then I sort of settled on the Colorado Rockies and got sad. You did? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, mean, I got to think about that one. That's not a bad one. Who would, who, what like version of the, the of- Rockies have had some good runs through the years every now and again. They signed some bad free agents every now and again. again yeah, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. That's a little sad. It's not great. But it was it was just a thought. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have shared it, if I'm honest. No, probably Honestly, not. I feel like the Mariners might be closer. Yeah. But I guess they had the long playoff drought that the Canucks didn't have. But the Mariners were always like kind of competitive, yeah. always around 500 yeah. or whatever. Had had some really great teams, and okay. also if you the, individual players, yeah. But if you look at their success or lack thereof, it's astonishingly low, which is kind of the same for Vancouver. Like <laughs> yes. when we we did the exercise of win percentage, oh, the Canucks no. rank in the bottom five of all the four major sports. Oh, it's tough. Pretty bad in terms of win percentage. Yeah. So. 
Yeah. Could be worse. Uh, at least you're not the uh, <laughs> Pittsburgh Pirates or anything like that. So, uh, Dan Richo, Satyar Shaw. So, okay, one of the things about this run here, Sat, is... Okay, forget about the sustainability of it all and all this. This management group has sort of hinted that this is what they wanted from the start, right? If you go back to the end of last season after Boudreaux, uh, you know, took this team on the great 100-plus point run, they said, no, we're not so sure, you know. We relied on goaltending a little bit more than we would like. And then what happened at the start of this year? They weren't getting goaltending, and the team fell flat on its face. It's almost like they were foreshadowing what was to come if the team didn't start playing better defensively. Now they are playing better defensively. Their goaltender is not just shining, but we're seeing like the best version of Thatcher Demko behind this great Canucks defense. The you're great seeing Canuck defense. Queen, you're <laughs> seeing Quinn Hughes play some of the best hockey he's played at any point. JT Miller has been rejuvenated. Elias Patterson, Andre. So, look, it's all. It's not all peaches and roses. I get that. There's still a very difficult puzzle that they have to figure out. But should this give you more confidence that the vision is lining up for this management group and what they want to see? and where they have hinted towards where they want to take this team as well. As if all those thoughts about there not being a plan, well, they're kind of showing you that there is a plan and there's some results to put behind it now too. Yeah, but if people were listening, I think they always told you about the plan. Yes. You just didn't like their plan. That, right. that was always been kind of the discussion from the beginning. I was like, what is their plan? Is they, they, they want to keep building. They want to be competitive. They, they, they've said the same thing over and over again. There's been a couple of times where Rutherford's alluded that maybe it's going to take longer than they expected. Mm -hmm. And that made you wonder, is that going to change their so-called plan? But as we discussed yesterday with the letter to the season ticket holders, it's very clear what their plan is. The question was, to your point, is there a vision of how the team to play the right one and are you seeing now at least okay this is more in line with what it takes and all along it was clear that they wanted more two-way profiles and one of the things we heard right away was Besser on thin ice Garland on thin ice and we had a good discussion right now with Harmon Dial about those two guys and we've spoken about those yeah. guys specifically as well given that you're watching talk at hockey you're watching manage Canucks management hockey to your point how they want to play does Besser fit that so, we've been pretty critical of Besser all season long. Yeah. He's, I mean, it's been warranted. The production has been there. He's near a point a game over the last 28 games. He's still, even in the Tocket era, by the numbers, the worst Canuck. The worst Canuck forward defensively. Yeah. Now, I agree. I don't see that as somebody that this management group is ever going to be truly high on. No, I don't disagree. And I think it's clear his lack of pace, too, is something they don't love in terms of how he plays. But, like we spoke to Harm about, there's a, letter, let, a level of predictability in his game, and he's got a good shot, too. Like, he can play with star players when he's at his best, mm -hmm. and he's shown an ability to do so. And if he had to keep him, and if he did all those things better— he could make sense. Like, we even last year, we talked about him and Miller together looked really good, and Pearson was the guy. Like, there was something there with that duo. We haven't seen it to that same extent again, but at least we've seen a shadow. We, we've seen a flash of, okay, you can get by with that. Like, if that's the yeah. best version of Besser, 
alongside Miller could work as your second line. That's not a bad combo if they put it together. What's your level of confidence in Besser, right? So I think Besser between him and Garland is still the guy, and it's clear from the the way they're deploying the players is the preferred option if you're keeping a guy on your right wing next to Miller than Connor Garland is. Oh, man, that's tough. Like I don't think you have an ideal situation that's going to play out here. Right? You're going to have to make some sacrifices somewhere, whether it be both Besser and Garland. But if you have to keep one or the other, I almost prefer the idea of keeping Garland where he is, helping out drive yeah. a third line, and then parachute Mikheyev once he's back from injury next training camp into where Besser is currently slotted. Yeah. To me, that is so uninspiring. <laughs> <laughs> so incredibly uninspiring that your best player on the third line is a diminutive winger who doesn't play special teams. Yeah. And is making five million. You gotta move that guy. You know, like you just have to. And like you're better off spending so, three and a half. Okay, if we feel that way than... about Garland, then isn't that sort of speak to why the rest of the league is sort of soured on Garland since he left Arizona? Potentially. And if you have to come back with him, sure. I mean, hey, listen, you can only do what you can do. I can't. I'm not going to yell at somebody for not doing But I do believe there is a level of interest in Garland where you could move him. I, I do think so, and we'll see what yeah. happens here. But I do think there's something there where you can. But he, going back to the discussion we had about you mentioning, are we seeing management, how they want the team to play? Does Garland fit that at all? No. I don't think him or Besser really fit that. No. And Besser could at least fit better than Garland. But I think, ideally, neither guy really fits in. They want more speed on the wings. Yeah, and they want more straight-ahead play. They want more north-south predictable play. I think the way they're viewing it is, and it's clear, we want to have a couple of lines that can go and score for us. And then we want to be able to grind you. Yeah. You know, we want to be able to have speed and and put the puck in the in the opposite end a lot and, and keep it there and, and really put pressure on teams, be a good forechecking team. Look at how the Penguins play, you know, outside of their top six and, and th- stuff like that. Look at the types of players they had on their third and fourth lines. They didn't have a Garland type. Haglin and Kapanen. Yeah. You know, at the very least, guys with speed. Like, Barbashev's name comes up. Like, on the third line, you know, Dollar was mentioning Barbashev. I don't like him as a center, but as a winger, I think he makes way more sense playing on your, you know, third line or second line than a Garland type does on this team. Now, you yeah. have to move these guys to bring him in. It makes no sense to me to sign another winger unless you clear somebody out. You have enough as it is here, right? But to me, like, Bavillier at least fits the mold. profiles better yeah. like we can you know I, th- I think there's value there and i don't know if you should be signing him to an extension necessarily but there's something you can do there he fits the profile at least like i, I can look at mckay and pavilion and say okay these guys fit yeah even you know like pearson has more of a two-way profile i know he's not expected to be back for training camp next year but at least just thinking about the player and what he is at his best and he wasn't that at any point this year but when he played really well last year not the most fleet of foot guy, but smart defensively and uh, can really help out in a top six in a yeah. very complimentary role. But this team wants more speed. They feel like they need more speed. They feel like they need more size. And you see that with some of the players that they've started to bring in here. How much is Rick Tockett a you know, mentioned wanting more size wall on the guys. defense as well. Yeah, well, and up front. Why like, is Dakota Joshua getting us? You know, getting a little bit of a push here on the top line? He's got size, and he can be a wall guy and get in on the forecheck. Yeah, I mean, you have Mikheyev, um, and that's pretty much it. And Joshua, 
Yeah. Those are the only two wingers you Joshua have. Joshua should be a bottom six guy. Yeah, but I mean, those are the only two bottom, the only two forwards you have that have real size and they can play really well along the boards, right? Again, yeah. you can really thrive in those areas. You need more guys like that. And even if somebody doesn't have the size, but can you still excel in that area? And as good as Garland is, and he does certain things, he just needs to puck on a stick too much. And he's just not the style of player, I think, that this management team looks at. I just, I just look at that line and say, yeah, you can find something to get by with it, but that's not the style of hockey they want from that line. Um, you mentioned Barbashev. Are we just like committed to the idea that the Canucks are going to be like the Canucks gold star? <laughs> I mean, like they feel like wolves in the Premier League <laughs> where it's just like George Mendes clients all over the place. I mean, I, hey, I think part of it is that there's a good relationship there, obviously. But I think profile-wise, it all fits. Yeah. Right? Like Mikheyev fits a profile of what they want on the wing, right? Mm-hmm. Barbashev fits a profile of what they're looking for. Gavrikov's name gets mentioned. What does he fit? A profile for lefty <laughs> defenseman with sides that can kill penalties and... And there aren't a ton of them available. There are lots, lots of them. But in this free agent class, he's at the top of the list. Yeah. He happens to be a Milstein client. You know what I mean? So I do think there's something there. But also, I think it's also a real seamless fit in terms of the players they ha- he has that it, fit what Vancouver wants. It's a happy coincidence. Yeah. Coincidence, good relationship to some. Yeah. I mean, th- there's definitely a good relationship there between Alvin. There's and a good Milstein. relationship, but also a happy coincidence that some of yes. the players he has available this summer fit the profiles of the players that the Canucks may want to add. Exactly. Uh, Jeffro, what would you guys think of a Gavrigov and Bear pairing? You know what? When he mentioned it, I, I don't think that's your long-term pair because I think both guys kind of need a bit more support, but... If you're playing Horonic and Hughes together at times, is that the worst second pair to have? Because those guys are playing a ton of minutes. Mm-hmm. So I think Bear gives you the option because he moves the puck that he can play with Quinn Hughes. And if you play him with a steady defensive guy on the left side like Gavrikov, in theory it could work. I don't believe that's an ideal fourth, I mean a second pair. But like I, I can see how there could be some potential in terms of those guys playing off of one another. Uh, Tim in Vancouver. Beauvillier has one goal in his last 14. Last thing Canucks need is another undersized, inconsistent <laughs> winger. They have yeah. enough of those. Hey, I'm all for it. I mean, like, like I've been saying, I mean, I, to me, if you can move Beauvillier, you can move Besser, you move Garland, move all three of those guys, get as much value as you can in cap space, because you can replace those guys. Like, yeah. you know, we mentioned... If Trade you, all of them and, you know find other things you can do with that cap space. Again, Barbashev. Barbashev can easily fit in to the Bavillier spot. Yeah. Easily in your top six. And then you have him in the Well, not even just unrestricted free agents, but, you know, what did uh, Seattle pay for Oliver Bjorkstrand last offseason? There's a good two-way winger. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Third and a fifth round pick. Uh, You have a couple extra, you know, you have extra third, you have two extra fourths. Yeah. I mean, those are things you can't explore. You know, you need the cap space to do those things. And I think that's where it comes into. And, you know, somebody mentions, what about Pods and Hoaglander and Kravtsov? They're not going to keep a spot in the top nine open for those guys. Yeah, I think it's going to be like, you're going to have to push somebody out. You know what I was thinking about today? The 2019 NHL entry draft. Oh, boy. And how good Matt Boldy has been playing lately for the Minnesota Wilds. Yeah, he's very good. Like Kirill Kaprizov goes down with injury and everybody's freaking out in Minnesota. And oh, hum, here is Matt Boldy, who was drafted two picks after Vasily Podkolzin. 11 goals in his last 11 games. Yeah. Two hat tricks. Yeah. Okay. This in is that I, time frame. 
listen, I love Matt Boldy in that draft. I was a big fan of Alex Newhook in that draft, too, and Cole Caulfield. And we talked so much about that draft and said, hey, if the Canucks take any one of those players at 9, yeah. it's not a reach. Or 10, not a reach. Like, if they take Boldy, be happy. If they get uh, – I have tweets about this, about yeah. Caulfield and, and these guys. Like, these are good players. Be happy if you take them. In fairness, at the time, Vasily Podkolzin was clearly in the higher tier. Yeah. So we can sit here and say that, and, and, and I'm with you. Like, hey, you look back now. But at the time, Podkolzin was clearly considered a tier above those players. Podkolzin uh, is what projected as a top three pick yeah. in that draft. But, man, Boldy has gotten so, so good uh, in this last little while. It's hard not to look at that just a little bit. Podkolzin's still a ton of upside. I don't disagree, but... You know, there's some things there that he definitely has to work on. Uh, getting chirped a little bit. Uh, <laughs> Great Canucks defense? Wow, Riccio. <laughs> hey, man. Great relative to what uh, they were earlier in the season. That caught sure. me, too. I was like, great? <laughs> I mean, better? Sag gave me like a, really? You sure about that? Great. Sure about that word? It's like that latest uh, TikTok videos going around. You sure about that? You sure about that? Sure about that. <laughs> oh, I saw. Oh, speaking of TikTok, I saw the one of the. You know, sometimes you see a TikTok and it's just so funny you can't stop watching it again yes. for whatever reason. It was this dude who fell down a stairway and it fell down a second stairway <laughs> and then just walked off like nothing happened. <laughs> if you know, you know. Oh man, yeah. just like walked off. All right, <laughs> good. The way he just jogged it off was hilarious. Uh, this text: better defense against weak <laughs> opponents. Sure. Uh, and this one, Fire Riccio. Hey. Now Stop that's that. way, oh, way. That's just rude. Uh, rude. Not doing that yet. Canucks season is over. Did the Blue Jays win? They did. Wild one in St. Louis to open up the season. Yeah, I mean, we, we only had a one-hour show because of the Blue Jays. So, I mean, like, <laughs> to your point, Canucks season is over almost. Uh, and uh, even with that great Canucks defense comment, I still made fewer mistakes today than John Schneider. Hey-o! Stan Richo, Satyar Shah, four producers Costa, and Josh Elliott. Wolf, you've been listening to Canucks Central.